such a strange canto. A beast of fraud, then usurers on the precipice, and now we're back to the beast of fraud. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are in the 17th canto of Inferno. We're at lines 79 through 99. And we should talk a lot more about that structure for this canto because this canto is odd. The usurers who our pilgrim has gone out onto the precipice of the abyss to see are sitting there on the last of the burning sands while Virgil negotiates with the beast of fraud and they are as if an interruption in the plot, as if they are somehow inserted into the middle of what is now back to the plot as our pilgrim walks back and finds that Virgil has got them away down into the deep abyss, the eighth and finally ninth circles of hell. So let's get to it. Canto 17 lines 79 through 99. I found my leader already astride the back end of that wild animal, and he said to me, Now be strong and fearless. From this point on, we go downstairs like these. Climb aboard in front of me, because I want to be in the middle so that the tail can't do you any harm. Like a guy who's so close to a fit of shivering from malaria that his fingernails have gone ashen, so much so that he shakes all over as if he's seen a ghost. Just so I said to at my master's words, but shame goaded me on, as it does at the behest of a good lord who can make his servant brave. I got myself seated on those ugly shoulder blades. I so badly wanted to say, although my voice didn't sound like what I believed it should, make sure you hold on to me. But it was so anyway, because the one who'd supported me through other tribulations grabbed me with his arms and held me steady after I'd made my mount. Then he said, now get going, Garion. Make your circles wide and your descent slow. Have a care for this new ballast that you've got. And off they set to head down into the deeper parts of hell and the final passage of this canto, which we'll get to in the next episode of the podcast. This is a mm, bit of a tough passage in some ways. It's just got a lot of things to pull apart in it. So we're going to work them down one to one until we finally get down to the name of the Beast of Frost. Garion, and then we're going to have to stop and really look at that. So let's just get through the passage bit by bit. I found my leader already astride the back end of that wild animal, and I have said enough about back ends and tails and all that stuff already, right, that I'm not going to have to point that back out to you one more time. We've had this beast well described to us. Our pilgrim has gone away to the usurers, and now he's come back, and Virgil has somehow negotiated with now we know, Garion, and Garion is going to carry them down over the edge of the precipice. How he's going to carry them is a matter of unbelievable imaginative force, but we'll get to that in the next episode of the podcast. Right now, let us just say he's going to carry them down, and Virgil's already astride this thing, this thing with the human face, but the hairy arms, the scorpion tail, the tattooed or painted body. Mm, A lot of people want to see the body as 
scaly, not sure that I see that in the passage, but it is tattooed and whorled, but it's got hairy arms, as it says from the pits down, a very strange beast. And Virgil has to say to our pilgrim, now be strong and fearless. From this point on, we go downstairs like these. You should know that from this point on, in fact, in Inferno, they are always going to climb down by means of some demonic or monstrous figure. And the next two descents after this are always like this, in that they have to use some hellish figure to get down a level. They'll have to do this from the eighth to ninth circle, and then after the ninth circle, they'll have to do it again. So this is the way down from here on out is via monstrous creatures and Virgil's letting us know that from this point on we go down by stairs like these climb aboard in front of me because I want you to be in the middle so that the tail can't do you any harm remember again as I said this thing has a scorpion tail and Virgil is going to somehow protect our pilgrim from that tail in case this thing changes its mind it is the beast of fraud after all and decides to sting them but how can you negotiate with fraud and can you trust fraud and when fraud sets out to go down a deep cliff can you trust fraud interesting question we're gonna have to hold that too for the next episode of the podcast I seem to be setting everything up for the next episode of the podcast let's go on with this episode like a guy who's so close to a fit of shivering from malaria, it's really in the text in the Florentine four-day fever, but it is a reference, we would now say, to malaria. From malaria that his fingernails have got ash and so much so that he shakes all over as if he's seen a ghost, just so I set to at my master's words. This is a very intriguing point. The pilgrim was pretty brave when he went to see the usurers, right? He went along the edge of that precipice. It's a really steep drop with a really bad waterfall going over the edge. And he walked over there and he saw them. He stared at them. He got close to them, close enough that he could actually see what was embossed on their money bags. He was brave, braver than he'd been at the walls of Dis, walking over there, looking at the usurers, walking back. But now he comes back and suddenly we're back to the fear and he's shaking all over. This is like he was at the walls of Dis, shaking all over when Virgil was negotiating with the demons for the gates of Dis to open. Interesting that he feels no fear toward the human centers, but again is now struck with fear over this beast. Is that, the, is that the trick? That he no longer fears the human damned, but that the, what shall we say, the mythic, the mystical, the imaginary damned, the beasts of hell still freak him out? Is that part of it? Or is there something else going on here? Is it that, in fact, his family was involved in money lending? And he doesn't express any fear in approaching the moneylenders in hell. But now that we're back to this thing, the beast of fraud, fraud, which, in fact, as we will see in the Eighth Circle, is the very thing that has done Dante in over the course of his life. Is it that he's now shaking with fear once again? It could be just beast versus human. It could be more psychological. It could be, well, all kinds of strange interplay. Because again, it just is another way in which that section with the usurers sitting out there on the edge of the precipice is, what do I want to say, parentheses <laughs> by these episodes with Garion. That is, it's the contained central episode that the 
the episodes with Gary and with the Beast of Fraud wrap around. And this is another way that that central episode with the users is different from the parentheses on either side of it. Here, he's afraid. Thematic, perhaps? Structural, perhaps? Even psychological, perhaps? Not going to come to any final answers on that. You know this podcast. Can't, won't, don't want to. Want to lay them all out there? Pass on. Here we go. But shame goaded me on as it does at the behest of a good lord who can make his servant brave. Virgil's done everything possible to get Dante astride this beast. He's exhorted him. He's already on him as an example. He's given him a proclamation and a command. I mean, Virgil has done all that you can do to get the pilgrim to get onto the back of this thing, which is great, but it's apparently not enough. And in the end, what gets the pilgrim aboard the beast is an internal feeling, shame, Shame goaded me on as it does at the behest of a good Lord who can make his servant brave. This is how Dante is modern. All of the external motivations, I'm on the beast, I'm exhorting you to get on, I'm promising that I'll take care of you, I'm positioning myself so you can't get stung by the tail, all of this stuff is still not as motivational as the internal state of shame. I realize that you and I, post-Freudian, would find shame not the strongest motivation, but again, that the poet needs to bring it back to the internal state of the pilgrim in order to get the pilgrim moving, whether that be love or shame or later, whether it be a kind of vengeance or revenge motivation, as we'll see. It has to come back to the pilgrim's inner state, and that's what makes our poet Dante so modern. Moving on to the passage, it says, I got myself seated on those ugly shoulder blades. This is the second time that Dante has touched one of the beasts of hell. Remember, he got astride a centaur. Here, he gets astride Garion, and there'll be one more time in which he touches one of the nasty beasts of hell itself. And then there's a final moment in which he doesn't really touch something. He actually climbs down it, but that's a long way ahead of us. Let's just note that this is the second time he's actually touched one of the demonic creatures of hell itself. And it would, of course, freak anybody out. I wanted badly to say, the passage goes on, although my voice didn't sound like what I believed it would, make sure you hold on to me. This is probably internal dialogue. In other words, this is what I wanted to say. Make sure you hold on to me. But I couldn't get it out because my voice didn't sound right. There are some translations who actually make this a line of dialogue. Make sure you hold on to me. I think it's probably set up as internal dialogue since it's set up as I so badly wanted to say this. But you should just know that that's an interpretive decision on my part and not every translator makes the same decision. For me, what's interesting is that in this canto 17 the pilgrim doesn't speak this is the only moment that the pilgrim could speak and i think this is a moment of internal dialogue virgil talks a lot in this canto we have had cantos in which virgil has been almost completely silent if not just out of the picture and standing to the side somewhere as with farinata but in this canto it is the pilgrim who is silent and I do think that's important because, again, 
going back to swearing on the comedy, to then come into a canto in which the pilgrim doesn't speak means that we come into a canto in which the poet Dante is in control. We're not necessarily worried about the pilgrim's dialogue or the pilgrim's interaction with even the usurers. Rather, we're catching the poet's beautiful description of their pouches, and we're going to catch the poet's unbelievable description of how they get down. So for me, to have the pilgrim silent in this canto is to allow the poet to be more in control, the poet Dante, more in control than the pilgrim and than we have seen in the past. But it was so, anyway, and part of it, the reason I believe that's internal dialogue is because of this line, that it was so. It, I didn't have to say it. Because the one who'd supported me through other tribulations grabbed me with his arms and held me steady after I'd made my mount. How is that possible that a shade grabs Dante and holds him? And while we're at it, is, back to this old question of corporeality, is Garion corporeal? Apparently, because the pilgrim can get astride Garion in the same way that the pilgrim can get astride a centaur. This question of corporeality is always sitting underneath the problems in the poem. It is a traditionally tough spot for people who believe in an afterlife of pain, as we've discussed. How is pain generated if the beings of the afterlife are not corporeal? How would just a spirit feel pain, which is a physical reaction? Here again, it doesn't seem like our poet wants to solve it. Later, on down the road, when we get to Purgatorio, there'll be attempts to actually solve this question. And again, I just want to say, and I said it in early episodes of this podcast over and over again, one of the things that's brilliant about Dante is that he actually attempts to solve the problems that lie underneath his own craft as fractures. He actually tries to fix those fractures, whether he does or not, is a matter of our debate. But nonetheless, he sees them and tries, and that makes him a great artist. But there's another reason Dante is brilliant. Remember how last time I went on and on about synecdoche as the foundational rhetorical strategy of comedy? That is, each sinner or each blessed is a synecdoche for an entire class, a part for the whole. Francesca is the synecdoche of lust, as it were. However, this is what makes Dante brilliant. Virgil is not just a synecdoche for those in limbo, or a synecdoche of classical poetry, or a synecdoche, or in this case we'd be slipping into allegory, of reason. He doesn't just represent the classical poets of limbo, he's also individualized. And here we truly see the modern push inside of comedy. Let me back up and just explain this just a little bit. Virgil is affectionate toward our pilgrim. He's got his 
arms around him. He's holding him. He's making sure that the tail doesn't sting our pilgrim as they are about to descend off this cliff's edge. So Virgil is there with all of his Virgilness, his own emotional space, his own desire to be a father figure, his own desire to love, yes, indeed, love the pilgrim. All through comedy, Virgil is Virgil with his fallibility and his, dare I say it, virtue. He is a formed individual who is also a synecdoche of those great classical figures in limbo. This is the problem in modern lit. Let me jump way ahead of comedy. Let me jump out to George Eliot's Middlemarch. This is the problem that Eliot tries to solve in Middlemarch. Her lead character, Dorothea Brooke, is an individualized character. She's a short-sighted woman who doesn't like little dogs because she tends to walk on top of them, to step on them. She likes big, big old mastiffs, you know, and great Pyrenees because she can see them. She's short-sighted in other ways. She has certain, uh, what am I going to say, mo motivations. She wants to find a great work for her life. All of this are, are her individuations, are what make her individual. And yet, Eliot wants Dorothea Brooke to represent the problem of women, the problem of women with very, very limited outlets to their creativity or intellect, who are stymied and forced into kind of very constrained circumstances in order to be creative or intellectually active in the world. So Eliot is caught exactly on this problem that Dante is caught and exploring. That is, Francesca is an individual who is damned for her lust, and yet she represents the class. That is the torque, the problem, the fracture that runs underneath modern narrative. Characters are both individuated and representative of a class. Same with Madame Bovary, we we could go down the line. I thought about doing this with Karamazov. I just thought Elliot was easier to do it with. We could do this with Brothers Karamazov. It's the same problem that characters represent a type, a class, a generalization, and they represent an individuation. That fracture between the two is what a modern narrative artist has to solve. And Dante brilliantly skates right past it, over it. It doesn't even seem, to use my metaphor, it doesn't even seem to trip his ice skates. He goes right over it. Virgil can represent classical poetry. Virgil can represent, maybe in the old school, an allegory of reason. And yet Virgil is Virgil with all of Virgil's Virgilness. That is really, honestly, the dawn of modern storytelling. Let's go out to the end of the passage. Virgil says, now get going, Garion. Make your circles wide and your descent slow. Have a care for this new ballast that you've got. And for the first time, the monster is named Garion. Let's talk about this in a little more depth. It has been withheld from us, the name of the Beast of Fraud, until line 97. We saw this beast quite accurately in the early parts of this canto, but the name has been withheld until now. I think 
part of it. This is my rationale. The reason the name is withheld is so shocking. Garion is a character mentioned in both Virgil's writings and in Ovid. Garion is a tri-natured warrior. He's a little hard to visualize, particularly in Virgil. It could be that he has three bodies and three heads. It could be that he has three heads on one body, but it is maybe that he has four wings and three bodies and three heads. He's a tripartite or tri-natured warrior. Some kind of weird amalgam of three bodies, three heads, maybe four wings, strange, odds, oddly unvisualized character. This Garion bears no resemblance to the Garion in Virgil and Ovid. This may bear a little resemblance to the locus in Revelation chapter 9, or what Catholics call the Apocalypse of St. John, or Protestants call Revelation in the New Testament, in chapter 9. In chapter 9, the angel blows his trumpet, the fifth angel blows the fifth trumpet to call down all kinds of uh, judgments upon earth. And part of the judgment are these locusts come up out of the earth, and they're told not to eat any green thing, but to just torture basically torture the people that are remaining on earth, essentially. And the locusts have a specific look. Their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing to battle. They had tails like scorpions with stingers. And in their tails is the power to harm people for five months. That's the actual um, translation of this. And they seem to come out of the bottomless pit and come up onto the earth. This has often been pointed out as a place where Dante gets this notion of Garion, that he's taken this warrior figure from Virgil and Ovid, and he's fused it with this passage from Revelation. But it, you'll notice this passage doesn't actually account for this beast. Uh, this beast, Garion in comedy, does not have women's hair. Yes, it has a scorpion tail, but I don't know that it's scaly. It's scaly in the Bible, in the New Testament, but I don't know that it's scaly in comedy. In fact, this thing looks a little more like the manticore. The manticore, which is part man, part lion, part scorpion. And you know who talks a lot about the manticore? Brunetto Latini in the Tresor in the first part at about line 192. Right in there, Latini spends a lot of time on the manticore, this fantastical creature that is part man, part lion, and part scorpion. Maybe that is the most direct reference to this creature in comedy, but in Latini, there are no tattooed or painted whorls and knots all over the skin. You know what? Here's the deal. There are all kinds of sources for this Garion. This creature can be found in Virgil, in Ovid, in Latini, in the Bible, and yet, at the same time, no source accounts for this monster. And so, when we hear this name, Garion, if we are classically learned readers, we're shocked. This isn't Garion. 
This isn't look like any Garion that I know. Maybe it looks like that Manticore in Latini. Maybe it looks like those locusts in Revelations, but those are bugs after all, not this giant thing that you can ride around on. This is finally a creature who is made up. Yes, Dante took the name from somewhere. Yes, he may have taken some of the characteristics from other sources. Yes, there's a tripartite mm, functionality of this Garion in the way that there's a tripart functionality in Virgil and Ovid. Yes, yes, yes. But our poet is making it up. This is one of the reasons he had to swear on his comedy that it was true, because for the first time, he has stepped a long way away from any source material, any classical material, any New Testament material, any Christian material. He has stepped a long way away. And getting out there as a writer into the world of your own imagination where you're making it up is scary. No wonder he has to swear on comedy. Also, what freedom? What unbelievable freedom has entered the text in which you don't have to line out hell based on Virgil's model in the Aeneid. You don't have to use Ovid as your text of metamorphoses and how the gods interact. In the end, as an artist, you can create it. Yes, there are all kinds of sources running around underneath what you're writing. When I wrote my memoir, Bookmarked, yes, there's all kinds of sources running around underneath that thing. They're modern memoirs. I have to tell you, I thought a lot about the education of Henry Adams, which nobody reads anymore from the 19th century when I was writing mine. There are lots of models everywhere that exist underneath any writer and yet you reach this point where you have to claim it and make it yours through your own imagination and so the name Garion is withheld until it could have the maximum impact on all of us until we could stand and say holy crow you're a brave guy you're just making it up you may be pulling stuff from all kinds of sources but in the end, that beast of fraud is yours. The beast of fraud is about to pull off one of the most imaginative acts so far in Inferno. About to get there, we got to get to that oh, oft-touted next episode of this podcast. So subscribe, come back. Next time, we're going to finish off Canto 17 finish off finally the circle of violence think how long we've been here since those centaurs and the minotaur think how long we've been doing this in the circle of violence <laughs> just wait till we hit fraud subscribe keep up keep on the journey with me you can find me on my website markscarpro.com be glad to talk to you there dm me on social media we can talk there and i'll see you next time on walking with tante